Hey everyone, this week's episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, Ledger, and Our Crowd. Really, really love these companies. Proud to call them sponsors. You're going to be hearing more about them later. But for now, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Roundup here. I am joined uh, by my co-host, who I've been missing for these last couple of weeks, Mr. Mark Yusko, who's in Las Vegas right now. What's going on, Mark? It's good to see you. Hey, things are doing great. Things are doing great. And uh, I have missed you. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's only two weeks, but uh, missed you a lot. Missed doing this on our, our Friday get-together. So, you know, start off real quick with, with the sock reveal. we got to do the sock reveal. Oh, uh, epic. Epic. Let's go. I am, I am wearing the, uh, the Bitcoin moon today. Not, not because I think we're immediately going to the moon, but because, and we talked about this maybe five, six weeks ago, there are cycles in crypto mm-hmm. and it's possible, you know, you got the new moon where you can't see it and you got mm-hmm. the full moon where you can see it. It's possible. I'm not saying, I'm not saying for sure, but it's possible we're on the backside of the moon. So, mm-hmm. uh, let's, let's talk about that at some point. Cool. We will. I've actually, uh, because of some of the guests I've had on recently, I've evolved my thoughts a little bit on this. So I'll, uh, I've got some new thoughts to share with you there. But I think we got to kick this off. I've got, we got a bunch of charts, um, but I want, I want to kick this off with you know the CPI. We're recording this on December tenth, so on Friday, uh, and CPI data just came out. It was six point eight percent. That's the highest that it's been in uh, thirty nine years. Uh, also, you know, news is just breaking yesterday that Evergrande has officially uh, defaulted on some of its debts. Um, and we also have the Omicron strain. So I was just saying to you before we got on here, I feel like I'm in a freaking time machine because we were talking about all this stuff, you know, a month and a half, two months ago, this is all playing out again. Uh, so, you know, I have some kind of thoughts about this in general, but there's a confluence of a whole bunch of different macro events, right? So this inflation narrative that was supposed to be transitory looks like it might not be transitory. We've still got kind of gurgling in the global, the global financial system, as Greg Foss would say, right? With this China Evergrande situation. Um, what are your just thoughts about markets when you look out into the world right now? Like, where do you think we are? Yeah, look, I, I think all your points are are spot on, and it does really feel like a time machine back to one of our first couple shows where mm-hmm. we did the Evergrande charts. And and look, I, I I don't believe. Let's start there. So let's start in China. So look, I don't think Evergrande is is a Lehman moment, even if they default on some debt. Um, the government is going to take care of what it needs to take care of, and and we've talked about this in the past that people have to remember that the government is not as indebted or China overall is not as indebted as people think because about 40% of the debts, they own both sides, right? Mm-hmm. They own the bank and the SME, uh, I mean, SOE. And so not in this case, will they, they forgive these guys easily. And, and I think probably somebody at Evergrande got on the wrong side of she and, and so they're being let go. But, uh, I think it will have some implications, and I like the term gurgling. Greg is, is a good guy. Uh, on, on inflation, I'm still in the, in the transient uh, side. I, I know it's a big print. I know it's a, uh, a big number, and people are like, oh, you know, this is the beginning of hyperinflation. I'm like, well, not really. I mean, yes, there are inflationary pressures, for sure. Uh, if you look at, at prices of things, uh, again, out here in Vegas for this big event, the takeover, and and there's a lot of people here, and prices are high, um, but it's it's still that I still think there are more deflationary forces out there in terms of aging populations and and slowing growth. I think growth is really slowing, and I think you see that in oil. You know, oil is a big component of the CPI print, and mm-hmm. oil went from low prices a year ago to higher prices. And you know, we got up close to 80 bucks. Actually, we even got a little over 80 bucks. Now we're back down to 70. We even got into the 60s. And I think Saudi and Russia are, are not going to be as, as disciplined as, as people would like, shall we say. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not in their self-interest to not, you know, not pump oil. So that's a lot of, a lot of word salad around. Uh, I think it's real. I think it's, you know, there's some issues. And then Omicron. I think it's a total non-event. The flu does uh, mutate. That's why flu vaccines don't really work. They're about 40% effective. That's why, you know, if you do get it, you actually can get it again, right? We get the flu from time to time. 
And I do think that uh, this idea that there are, you know, what do you say, 39 different strains of it or something, that sounds more like a normalized flu than some superbug that, you know, we're trying to kill. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that thing. It's just like, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like people are starting to finally say the quiet part out loud where it's like, guys, come on. I mean, how many boosters where it's just, it's not, you know, you don't get five, you know, four, five, six, whatever uh, boosters for a vaccine. It's, it's just an ongoing shot. I know, I mean, Michael, that's what one we got to do. Favorite tweets. Some guy said, uh, so I got my shot, uh, and then I got a second shot, and I got the measles anyway. Said no one ever. <laughs> yeah, so. I'm with you on that. I, you know, there, there's, it's funny. There's a great um, episode. I, I love Grant Williams' show, um, and he was recording uh, with Julian Brigden um, a yeah. little while ago. And this was you, you can actually go back and look this up on on his show. Um, but uh, he he was saying this is probably like a month and a half or, or two months ago. And he said the Fed they must just be praying for another strain of COVID because they're in a really difficult position. And the context of what they're saying, I got goosebumps when I went back and listened to it because I was like, oh my God, it's all happening now. And the context for, for why they were describing that is because the Fed needs some sort of cloud cover, right, in order to keep stimulus going. If you go back to March of, 20, March of 2020, right, that's really when everything started to trade, at least from my vantage point, on what the Fed was doing and monetary accommodation, right? You had the entire world shutting down. Markets didn't care because the Fed was coming in with their monetary bazooka. They're going to take care of things. And I think that's when that really was when everything started to trade on what central banking and the Federal Reserve in particular was doing. So now it's kind of like, okay, uh, markets were getting spooked. At least this is my this is my interpretation of what was happening. Markets were getting spooked because inflation was, you know, continuing to put up these monster prints. Uh, and eventually, the markets were starting to say, okay, uh, the Fed, the stimulus that we've been loving for the last 18 months, yeah. that's going to have to stop eventually because it, they, they just can't keep ignoring these huge CPI prints. But now they have a slowing recovery. They have Omicron strain coming back. They've got their cloud cover to say, guys, it's not happening as fast as we thought. we got to slow the taper. we got to push rate hike uh, increases out. That, that's my interpretation of what's – I believe this must be good for markets. Some might even say – if they were someone like myself, that perhaps <laughs> this is uh, created, uh, not, not bioengineered, but I mean, this, this hysteria around uh, a virus is, was, was created for exactly that, that sole purpose. Look, mm -hmm. uh, there's no way out. Governments mm -hmm. around the world, the Western economies, have no way out than to devalue mm -hmm. their currencies. No mm -hmm. way out, right? We've talked about this. You have four choices with debt. You can pay it back. You can modify it or renegotiate it. You can default on it or you can devalue your currency. And they can't pay it back, right? They could take all the billionaires' wealth, not just some income, but all their wealth, and it wouldn't cover one year of the U.S. government budget. Uh, you can't restructure the debt because nobody would take the other side. They're not going to take pennies on the dollar. You can't default because then you're out. And mm -hmm. politicians don't like to be out. They like to be in. And so you've got to devalue. And the devaluation, I, I did a hashtag, I don't know, five, six years ago called QE forever, uh, mm. QE number four ever. And it is, we, we are going to have QE forever and we're going to yep. devalue the currency more and more. And so people say, oh, but that, that means then Bitcoin's got to go to the moon. Mark, that's why you got your socks on. Right? No, that's, that's long term, yes, but mm. not, I mean, there's cyclical ebbs and flows and, uh, you know, Different, different reasons, but long-term, no question that this mm. monetary debasement, don't call it inflation, that's my thing. This is not inflation. This is monetary debasement, devaluation, mm. debauchery. And that's what we're experiencing. It's not stopping. No way. Yeah. You know, I, I do feel like we've made it over the hump in terms of uh, COVID in general and that this is probably what was always going to happen, right? There are going to be a whole bunch of different strains that go out there. You know, in terms of Omicron, right, it is being reported from South Africa that these, this is like a more mild strain in general. And eventually, you know, maybe the studies end up being something like where you have to get your flu shot. I, I'm not an epidemic. I'm not going to speculate on that. I'm just saying I, I do agree with you that um, I, I don't think what we're seeing is is surprising right now, basically in terms not of government all. reaction to it. Um, and, and by the way, if you go back to the, the Spanish flu, uh, you know, that ended up, you know, we always say, oh, it's such a shame that this got politicized. Science shouldn't be political. 
it got politicized back then too. You know, so it, this is just how people are when there are really shitty decisions where there's no good answer. People end up disagreeing and they do name calling and all that. Never kind of waste a good crisis is the mantra mm-hmm. of a good politician. Never waste mm-hmm. a good crisis. Yeah, I agree. Um, I do want to get into charts here uh, a little bit, and then I, I do want to get your opinion on, on Bitcoin cycles because I've got a new I've got a new theory to propose to you. Um, but uh, we haven't done charts in a while, so I'm going to share my screen here. And I'm actually uh, I'm I'm being mean here because I know this is super early in the in the morning for you, but actually I'm going to start this off with a a little quiz for you here. Uh, so this oh. is a pretty interesting chart. What what do you think this this is a chart of that we're looking at here? Ooh, what do I think that is? Well, this it, is going to be well, tough. It is tough. It is tough. It's not Tesla because it would have uh, a big collapse on the other side all of a sudden. The puking mm. dinosaur or puking brontosaurus pattern is what the Tesla chart looks like now. <laughs> that is, uh, I would say, the, the, the monetary base, but that's probably not mm. it either. Uh, I can't say lumber because that was lumber in February. Uh, uh, I'm going to jump in and save you here, Mark. This is EU carbon credits. That oh, thing like this. Mm. dang it. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These things are pumping up. Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, how much insight you really have into that market. It is funny. It's like this would be a top performing asset uh, overall. I, I'm, I don't have great insight into how the market for carbon credits work. I don't know if you do either. I know it is a, yeah. a big part of Tesla's business model in general, but I just thought it was a little like this chart was just getting passed around on Twitter and I thought it was pretty interesting. In general. Well, no, it, it's awesome. It's, it's a supply and demand issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it's funny. I was just talking to uh, there's a guy who runs a ESG group within a big family office, multinational family office, and he just moved to Chapel Hill. So we had coffee on Wednesday, nice. and uh, we were talking about this chart. And I said, mm-hmm. I can't believe I I didn't get it. We didn't have the chart. We we're talking about carbon credits, and <laughs> they said, you know, it's just exploded. And mm-hmm. uh, it's it's literally a supply and demand thing. There are only so many. I guess I don't know authorized issuers of, of these. It's you know like Tesla. Like if Tesla didn't sell their their credits, they they'd be not profitable at all. Mm-hmm. Like they don't make money selling cars. I I contend they'll never make money selling cars. And we had an interesting conversation about this yesterday. Um, Bill Tai, who oh my gosh, I just love Bill one Tye. of the most amazing speakers I've heard in yep. a long time. I mean, and I've heard bits and pieces, but I never heard him like for an hour. Unbelievable, unbelievable. And, and we're talking about this, this idea that, that communities now are literally driving value, right? The, the, the value of an asset uh, without any regard to cash flows or profits, or it's just being part of that community. And you, know, you do it with with NFTs, Bored Apes, or CryptoPunks. You could do it with Tesla shares or AMC shares. And it's the the more members of the community, kind of like Bitcoin, right? The more members yeah. in the community, the higher the value goes. And I think this is, this is what's happening here. It is mandated that by 2050, Europe is carbon neutral, which is impossible, mm. right? Well, except they exempted private aircraft. It's kind of funny, but but it's it's not possible. Right? It's, it's literally impossible. Probably not even a good idea. Um, I make a lot of people mad when I say that. But it's probably not a good idea since you know we need CO two for life and things like that. But um, it's impossible. So how do you do it? Well, you have this. I don't know. So to me, it's a little bit of kabuki theater in some ways. Is that so? I can take an airplane. I can do a negative, and then I can buy carbon credit to offset my carbon footprint hmm. i don't know maybe it's more complicated than that and i don't really understand it that's certainly possible but i mark how does the markets for these carbon credits work actually i i'm not really 100 percent sure you know i i hear that when you say they're you know authorized issuers and everything can you just give like a you know a synopsis of like who issues these things what are these credits how do they trade how does the supply get determined like i, I always hear about you know carbon credit offsets and stuff like that, but I don't really have much of an understanding of how these markets actually yeah, work. Yeah, I said, Michael, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm definitely not an expert, but I, I do know mm-hmm. there are certain types of businesses, mm-hmm. EVs being one of them, that the, the, you know, issuance, I guess, for lack of a better term, of an electric vehicle into the world <clears throat> creates a, 
a set of carbon credits because it use or produces less carbon when it it drives but again i don't really understand because the part of producing that car and mining the rare earth minerals and and transporting it and doing those things all do require things that produce carbon so i i actually don't know specifically why certain industries get credit so to speak and, and then can issue these credits or sell these credits um, but I do know there are a few, and this is the part that I'm, I'm pretty sketchy on. There are some companies that, that actually can, I don't know, like it's, like it's re-injecting CO2 back into, I don't know if it's caverns or into solution or, or something, but there are things that, that actually can decarbonize uh, the, the atmosphere. And therefore, mm -hmm. those companies then are allowed to sell these offsets. And there, and there is this now marketplace for it that, that has popped up, but that's probably all I know. We should, we should dig into it and, and come yeah, back to it. Yeah, some, do some research on it. Um, so this, this chart is a little bit more up our, uh, up our alley here, and I think there are a couple interesting things to call out. So for folks listening on the podcast, what we're looking at is the change in U.S. household debt. So this is a percentage change since Q1 of 2003. Um, so it's basically indexed starting at 0%. Um, and then, you know, we're looking at it 18 some, some odd years later. Um, you know, they bucket into a couple of different things. We've got student loan, auto loan, mortgage, uh, AT revolving, credit card, and other. Uh, student loans here are the big standout, uh, actually. So that's gone up 546% as a percentage of household debt, which is absolutely nuts to me. I don't know if you saw there was a story that came out uh, like – CNBC or something reported on it, which was that if we reinstated payments for student loan debt, that would threaten the economy in general. And like yeah. I remember looking at numbers a little while ago, it was like over a year ago, that the amount of outstanding student loan debt was like $1.6 trillion, trillion or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, which, is bonk which is bonkers to me. And it also, I mean, that's, that's disappointing. You know, that's disappointing because honestly, if I'm not a one-issue voter, if I was a one-issue voter... It would probably be around education. It was a huge value for me as a, in a family growing up. I'm very thankful to my parents. They made sure I got a good education. They sacrificed for that. You know, to, to see student loan debt going up like this is just, that's crazy to me. I don't know. What's oh, your look, take when you look at this chart? I, look, I, it's, it's one of the big scams of our time. And it, mm -hmm. and it has to do a lot with um, how lobbying works, right? Why is it that certain debt is deductible? Right? Mortgage mm -hmm. debt is deductible. Credit card debt is not. Or interest. Why is that? Mm. Lobbies. And, you know, student loans, uh, again, are subsidized by the government. They, they have lower rates from the government. Uh, why, why is that? Well, if you think about it, that's, it's a sanitized form of debt. It's an acceptable, socially acceptable form of, of debt. If you told people that you had massive credit card debt, you go to debtor's prison. If you told people that you know, you're upside down on your mortgage, you know, people would think, oh, that poor person. But if you say, I have a lot of student loans, oh, you must have went to an Ivy League school and you must be so important. Mm. And, and there was a whole other issue of, of uh, these private education companies that were total scams, right? There were people mm. who really weren't going to class per se. They were just taking these student loans. They were using them to live. Uh, that's another problem is a lot of people, uh, they get the student loans, but they don't use them for tuition because there's no real follow through on how you use them. You use them for rent or use them for food. And that's what you say. They would, it would certainly, uh, abatement would certainly impact the economy. And, and the, the, the starkness, if that's a word, uh, of this chart is incredible. You always have the best charts. So uh, the idea that, that mortgage debt is <clears throat> falling. Uh, mm -hmm. that's just because the average person can't afford to buy a house, young person can't afford to buy a house, but student loan debt, I mean, just alligator jaws. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's a big problem. And I think part of it is call it what it is. There are a lot of people who are using quote unquote student loans for a lot of other things besides school. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't help us on the education front. Howdy everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. 
On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip, auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at this bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. Yeah. I agree. There's also there's a really great podcast uh, that Mark Andreessen actually did. An invest, uh, it was an Invest Like the Best podcast. Must have come out back in August or September um, of this year. But he's talking about why the price for higher education has just continued to go up and up and up. And it's kind of one of those situations where it's like the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Uh, I, I completely agree. I, I thought it was a really interesting point where um, yeah, we have different treatments for different types of interest, right? So, you know, when you talk about something like mortgage debt, the U.S. government at one point just decided that it was a good thing for Americans to own their homes, right? So they, um, you know, they give different tax treatment for interest on your mortgage as opposed to interest on your credit card debt. Uh, student loans, again, I actually feel like we're kind of part of a, I mean, the, the you, you should go and listen to what Mark says about it. But basically what his, he says is like, Governments are actually trying to subsidize the cost of education, but in their subsidy of education, they become a buyer for these higher institutions. And they're like the least price sensitive buyer of all time, right? So by subsidizing this, they're essentially allowing the you know higher institutions of higher education, like the Harvards, the Yales of the world, to just continue to increase and increase and increase their prices year over year because they're, in, they're creating this artificial environment where they're the buyer. Absolutely, yeah, it's, Michael. Yeah. It's price yeah. fixing. Price fixing mm-hmm. never works, right? Mm-hmm. Minimum wage. It, it doesn't. It doesn't work. Any mm-hmm. price that you fix, interest rates. Interest rates should be market based. The Fed, mm-hmm. a bunch of stale, pale white males, should not mm-hmm. be deciding because they have a little diversity now, but not much. But mm-hmm. they should not be deciding the level of interest rates. The market should. And to your point, this idea that that the everybody says, oh, the cost of tuition is so high. That's the gross cost. The net cost, the average person, right? There are a whole bunch of people who don't pay anything, right? They get full scholarships and, and full benefits. And, uh, and then some people have to take out these student loans <clears throat> to afford it. And what's really interesting is, is how that, that split between upper classes and lower classes and you know the, the really wealthy, they don't have to take out student loans. Mm-hmm. And the really, really disadvantaged get these full rides. It's it's that you know middle class kid who has to take these massive student loans, and you know it's not surprising that the average person now says they're not better off than their parents. Yeah, it's a frightening which is thought. sad. It is. Yeah, it really is. Um, we've got a series of charts here moving forward, and uh, actually, I just would love to get your take on this. This is kind of a series of three different charts here. Um, um, I, uh, I I kind of pulled this. There's a Twitter thread um, that Alfonso uh, Pecatiello did, uh, which was great. Uh, so I'm going to kind of borrow his line yep. of reasoning and then and put it to you and see what you think. But you know, he kind of starts off with this idea that U.S. banks are actually not lending into the real economy. We're looking at a two-year rolling average here, and you can see for those of you who are not looking at the chart, you know, it's just been falling off a cliff. Basically, the amount that banks are lending into the real economy starting in. Um, you know, basically, you know, mid 2020 or 2020, right? So, uh, you know, yeah. you can kind of see the peak uh, pre-COVID crisis, and then it just falls uh, sharply off a cliff. Uh, you know, we've kind of looked at this chart before. We're looking at the G5 credit impulse uh, versus, uh, uh, you know, earnings for the S&P. Um, so basically the idea here being the credit impulse for the G5 leads and then earnings tend to follow. Uh, that would be not so great because um, the credit impulse has basically fallen off a cliff um, over the course of the last couple months. And then finally, he, he, he rounds thing off with this idea 
that uh, we are kind of headed towards Japanification in general. So what you're looking at here is Japanese uh, the base money supply versus broad money uh, uh, supply and bank loans. So we're looking at this all the way from 1999. Um, actually, this is up through 2008. But basically, the idea here is that there's not a huge correlation in between base money growth and broad money growth. But actually, the the uh, the interesting connection here is that the when you look at base money creation, so when you hear about the Fred, the Fed printing money, they're talking about base money M1, uh, and you look at bank loans. There's actually not just not a positive correlation, not just no correlation. There's a negative correlation in between the amount that banks lend into the economy and the amount of base money that gets created, which is pretty interesting. So that was a whole bunch of different stuff there. I don't know where you want to start in, but I, I do think no, I don't know. Look, what, I, what are your I, thoughts? I, I think it's um, a couple things. So one hundred percent. We're turning Japanese, turning Japanese. I really think so. The vapors, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Love that. Absolutely. I even played that as a walkout song at a conference maybe 10 years really? ago. That's and, great. Uh, you know, look, there's, there's, no, there's no question. Uh, look, Japan is 11 years ahead of the United States demographically. So whatever happens in Japan happens in the United States 11 years later, whether it was you know, the 89 crash in stocks, then 11 years later we had a crash in stocks in 2000, whether it was the downgrade in debt, in uh, 83 for Japan and then in 94 for the US, no, no 93 and 2004 uh, for the US uh, from AAA to AA. And it's just, that's, demographics is destiny. There's no way to stop people from turning 65 and 65 to 85 year olds are not productive. They don't spend a lot and economies slow down. And so mm -hmm. the, the challenge for Japan was they had all these banks. And if you go back uh, before 20 years ago, right? Japanese banks were the envy of the world, and then they were basically bankrupt. And today you wouldn't find any of them amongst the top 10 banks in the world. And what they did, right, just like we are doing now, is, is you, you basically bail out your banks. Because right? Fed funds, do you borrow at Fed funds? I've never borrowed at Fed funds. I borrow at Prime no. or something like that. And so the only people that borrow from Fed funds are the banks. And so when the banks crashed in the United States in 2009, the Fed flooded the system with money, QE, <clears throat> and it was copying. Um, actually, we, we originated back in the 30s, and then Japan perfected it, called it QQE. And I love the, the Japan chart. You know, in 2007, Japan said they were going to end QQE. No more money supply growth. <laughs> right. And uh, they've been doing QQE forever. And they're 260% debt to GDP and all kinds of, of challenges. And yet... No economic growth, no inflation, just stagnant economy. Um, so, so that's that's part of the problem. Third. Then in the U.S., so you 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 create all this money, quote unquote, and you put it into the banks, and the banks they don't lend because there's no demand. Hmm. The bank balance sheets did get better. We did save our banks, so that that was fine. I, I personally think we shouldn't have. I think we should have sent some people to jail for doing bad things, and we should have shut down a couple of the the really bad bad lenders and don't believe we should have bailed everything out, but it wasn't my decision. It was actually bankers' decisions. So shockingly, the bankers voted to bail themselves out. It's funny how that works. Um, but back on that, that first chart for a second, uh, there's no question that it's signaling there's just falling demand, right? If, if everybody's locked in their house, they can't start new businesses, and that's usually where a lot of bank credit comes is people decide to become entrepreneurial, they want to open a store, they want to open a business, and and that's a big part of it. Uh, again, if you're locked in your house, you can't go out and buy stuff, so overall demand falls. Uh, so it's not surprising to see bank lending kind of collapse in 20. What is surprising is if you pump $3 trillion, trillion, mm -hmm. why didn't it turn back up? Again, mm -hmm. no demand. Then you go to the next chart. Look, my high school wrestling coach used to say, where the head goes, the body follows. So if you want to get a kid go this way, move their head, and the rest of them will go there. And so uh, the blue line is telling us that we are going to have a collapse in S&P earnings. Uh, and so either, either uh, stocks are going to collapse as well, or multiples are going to skyrocket. We're already at the highest PE ratio in history. We're already at the, already at the yeah. highest price-to-sales ratio in history. And again, this is one of the things we were talking about that – communities don't care about that stuff. 
you know, communities buy things as status or, mm. you know, um, because your friend did or, or peer pressure. And, and they, they lose rationale, you know, the madness of crowds. And so it doesn't mean that stocks have to crash. Earnings are going to crash. There's no question. Growth is going to slow. Earnings are going to go down. I mean, this, this chart is I'm not a statistician. Really high correlation. Like really mm-hmm. high. Like 90-something percent. And it makes sense because look, monetary stimulus uh, or, or credit impulse is what drives economic growth. You know, full mm-hmm. stop. And the real problem is it's like drugs. The first hit someone takes of a drug, super high. It's awesome. The second one, not quite as good. The third one, not quite. Mm-hmm. And it takes more and more to get the same because your body learns how to deal with it. And the same thing yeah. in an economy. The first dollar of debt, if there's no debt in an economy, the first dollar of debt is massively stimulus, stimulative. But as you add more debt, it takes increasing amounts of debt to create the same amount of GDP growth and earnings growth. And that's what this is telling us. And then the Japanese one, it's just uh, an inevitability. For seven, the next 17 years, every single day, 10,000 people in the United States and another 10,000 in Europe will turn 65. And even though 65 to 85 years, it's not as far away now as I used to say, but uh, for me, that we're certainly nice people, but they're not as you know big on spending. They're not productive in the way we measure productivity 45 to 65 year olds are really productive and it's gonna be a while before the gen z's and the millennials really become in that high growth period of 45 to 65 so it's all right yeah. it's not a disaster scenario it's just kind of this meandering like you go to tokyo it's awesome right they've great mm-hmm. restaurants the apartments are nice but it's it just operates at a different pace and the banks have been horrible investments for 25 years. And the only thing that's been a good investment in Japan has really been tech. Uh, a few other things, but. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I, I, I also want to return to this, this point that you're making about communities in general. Um, I have a new kind of working theory for communities, which is that like if you went back to the dot-com era, uh, you know, the dot-com bubble, you know, the big thing that everyone would talk about then was eyeballs, eyeballs, yep. eyeballs. Um, after the bust of the dot-com bubble, that was much derided, you know, and it was like, how could we have ever thought that profits don't matter? How could we have ever been focused on this thing called eyeballs? Well, you know, you look at one of the dominant uh, monetization schemes of the internet, and to be honest, it's eyeballs, right? Like, you know, there's this joke about an internet company, it's big enough, it becomes an advertising-based company. And I, I actually think they were right they were just really early. And, you know, kind of when I look at a lot of crypto right now, I really do believe, I deeply believe that community is the most important thing. It's the layer zero of all these other protocols beyond, even underneath and more foundational to the success of these networks than the consensus mechanism and whatever tech is kind of baked into that network is the community of people and the memes and the messages and the marketing and the narratives that get manufactured around that really the core fundamental thing that's hard to analyze or put in a chart is the community that they build up. I will say, I I almost feel like we might be a little bit ahead of our skis though, in terms of, you know, I'm starting to see these things, you know, oh, it's a DAO. And, you know, if it's a DAO, then it gets this sort of valuation as opposed to just a regular old company because it has the power of community. It's kind of like, hmm, I don't know. (laughs) Just just, just pull that, pull it. It's, It's again, such great analysis. But pull the thread a little bit. Mm. So a lot of people know what next door is, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. a little community thing and everybody's kind of spying on each other. And, you know, when I was growing up, there was a show on TV called Bewitched and there was this neighbor, Gladys Kravitz. And you know, don't be a Gladys. Don't don't be in your neighbor's face, you know, looking, spying in the window. And that's what you use next door for. We can but here's the thing. Think about the people you've met on next door experienced. Do you want that group of people making decisions on your corporation structure? Mm. I mean, anyone can be in a DAO. Anyone can have governance. And anyone can make decisions. Everyone has mm. a vote, equal vote. And so and this, this goes back to you know representative democracies and 
how the framers were like, well, maybe not everybody should have a vote. Maybe only landed gentry should have a vote because we know what's best for the other people. And mm -hmm. they had a little problem if you, some people with property. <laughs> okay, so that, there's, we had to fix that. Pretty big problem. But, <laughs> you know, women didn't yeah. get to vote. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I love the Dow structure. I love decentralization and, and I'm all in. But I, I totally agree with you that we are going to have many, many hiccups along the way. Uh, I mean, look, 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 Constitution Dow. Great idea. People came together. They came together. They raised money. <laughs> of course, then somebody who has more money, almost lower than God, said, nope, I'll take that. So whatever your bid was, I bid $1 more. And yep. uh, now, now what do we do? Oh, now we're going to go do this or do this. Well, that wasn't really the plan. And you actually didn't think through, well, what if we don't get it? When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it for my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking and they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm gonna keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Aave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd takes a global bird's eye view of private markets and brings the companies with the greatest growth potential to you to invest in. One of my favorite quotes from Jim Bianco is when he says, I hate it when people tell me to invest like Warren Buffett. I wish I could invest like that guy. He sees all the best deals. Well, our crowd is addressing exactly that issue by bringing private companies to you when you can take advantage of them i.e. when they're still early. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many have benefited from the 46 uh, IPOs or otherwise sale exits that they've experienced on the platform. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash OTM. Again, that is ourcrowd.com slash OTM. If you take one thing away from this, be it that you should include OTM when you join our crowd. We'll see you soon. I'm with you. I, uh, you know, I think in general, like I, I have, what is that phrase people say? Like the mark of a good investor is being able to hold two contrarian ideas in their head at the same time. And I, I've personally struggled on DAOs a little bit because yeah, I've some prediction episode Jason and I did like a year ago. I, I believe deeply in DAOs. I, I just kind of look at them and I'm like gut intuition. This feels like the right direction. This feels like the future. But at the same time, you know, I can't help but look at it and say, I think there are a lot of problems with how this governance structure plays out. And I think you're starting to see cracks in like pretty famous DAOs. So I don't know, this is like pretty in the weeds crypto thing, but there's a guy named Joseph DeLong. He's the CTO, uh, or formerly now the CTO um, at Sushi, which is Sushi is a DAO in terms of how they're structured. He tweeted this thing out, um, I think on December 6th, or like the beginning of this week. And he's like, look, guys, unless I can pass the upgrades that I want to pass for this platform, uh, and unless we can radically change how we're doing compensation here, then I, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave and do something else, right? And three days later, he leaves. And you know, there was another thing that didn't really make it into news headlines, but was really interesting. Um, there was an ex-employee of Maker, and she posted this whole thing, uh, you know, basically on an open forum, you know, accusing Rune Christensen of, of MakerDAO, the, the co-founder, of yeah. being a dictator. And then he needs to respond in this open way. And I was blown away. I was blown away by this exchange. I sent it to a lot of people. I don't think they thought it was as yeah. interesting as I did. But as a 
as a founder, you know, a lot of what your job is, you're managing people and uh, you're, you're kind of working at, hey, this person said this thing I didn't like or this other person said this thing. And, you know, you're kind of like, OK, well, you know, you try to see their point of view, whatever. And I had two big takeaways, which is, you know, at an early stage of a company, which, by the way, early stage can be like five to seven years. You yeah. need someone with a strong vision pushing things forward. Seriously, like the roadmap is not two years and then it becomes decentralized. It's like five to ten years should be the assumption of the dictator and then they yeah, give yeah. the power away. Yeah. And resolving uh, employee disputes or human disputes in an open public forum is a recipe for disaster. I will die on that hill. That is 100%. not how disputes should be resolved. No, 100%. Look, there's, there's, a, great, there's a great saying that uh, you cannot have uh, true democracy – without uh, economic stability. Mm -hmm. And so f therefore, there is a period to your exact point, right? Where dictator slash autocrat, what, whatever it happens to be, strong, strong hand leader is actually needed. Ah, no, it should always be democracy. Well, no, think about a, a really unstructured country right now. You know, pick, pick, pick country with civil war and all kinds of stuff. You really want to just walk in and say, okay, everybody has an equal vote, and let's just, let's just be a democracy right now. It, it just it, it will fail, to your point. You'll have yeah. all these, these exchanges. And, and so you know, Russia is a good example of that in the sense that you know, Putin came in and said, oh, he's, he's an autocrat and he's a dictator. Well, Russia's actually kind of gone like this. And as they got more economically stable, then they could shift, and they're about even close to perfect democracy but people do vote and maybe they count the votes funny i don't know but but it if you asked people there if they feel better than they did 10 years or 20 years ago they say oh my god are you kidding of course there's food in the stores and i can get around and so it can't have democratic or, or, or political systems that are stable without economic stability and 100 percent agree with you yeah. You know, people will prioritize that first, by the way. You draw your little pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And by the way, there's never been a single successful pure democracy governance in human history ever. And, <laughs> you know, go back to ancient Greece. Uh, people treat ancient Greece as if it was this one thing. There are very distinct city-states. If you look at something like Sparta versus something like Athens, Sparta was basically, if you looked at the governance structure of that, you would call it like an autocratic regime. It was a yeah. super strict uh oligopoly. It was based on slave labor. They treated their, their helots like horribly badly. Uh, yeah. Even in Athens, which was more like pro-democracy, um, uh, you could actually see there was really like a, an arist aristocratic class and then there was still slave labor and then there was kind of all the, the poor people. And by the way, it, you could make a very, this is the whole Thucydides trap thing, you could make a very interesting comparison between China as Sparta and the US as Athens back in that time. And I will say, the Athenians thought that they were superior to Sparta because they had this more evolved structure of governance. Well, guess what? Go back and look at the Peloponnesian Wars. Look at who won that. Spoiler alert, it was Sparta. And I, I love, you know. um, there was this little conflict, uh, the revolution, I think it was called, in the <laughs> 1700s. And you know, you had the dominant superpower so to speak and this little mm -hmm. ragtag band of of misfit militias i think they won i i, mm -hmm. I think we're having this conversation because they won yeah. it's your point i won look i love the fact that someone can speak so eloquently and and easily and facilely about <laughs> about ancient history and and how look there's nothing new in this world i've talked about nothing this all leadership books that you buy don't buy a leadership book. Just go back and read people from 2,600 years ago. Read, you know, Cicero and and Socrates and and uh, my favorite uh, Seneca the Younger, right, or Seneca the Older, um, and it's all there, right. In fact, I think the the handbook, the manual that the army uses to train leaders, it's got some long number, um, it was all based on all these ancient writings because it's it's all. There's nothing new. It, it's all happened before because humans are humans. And to your point, there was uh, this aristocratic, aristocratic class that had democracy and they had tunics and they had you know 
But there was a whole bunch of people doing the work who had a little different view of the world. And I don't know. It's, uh, I do think American exceptionalism. I talk about this all the time, right? I'm a Notre Dame football fan, so I'm licking my wounds. Oh, we didn't get in and, you know, should have been in. No, we lost, right? We lost to Cincinnati, so we don't get in. Um, but I said, oh, Americans are like Notre Dame football fans, right? We remember a past that never was. Hmm. And we, for whatever reason, don't remember. I tell people, watch the movie Gangs of New York and see what America was like in 1860s through 1920. It was a mess. It was a chaotic mess run by gangs. And you literally would walk down the streets of New York and you could get killed for no good reason other yeah. than you cross the wrong side of the street or you wore the wrong hat or whatever. And, and we've come a long way. But now we, we act as if everyone else should be like us instead of thinking, well, maybe they're at a different point along that path from 1860 to 1890 to 1920 to 1950. And uh, I was with this guy, this team is awesome. So uh, investor based in, in China, uh, you know, a younger guy in his 40s. And the guy's crushing it. I mean, crushing it, making five, 10x returns on everything he touches. And, you know, what does he do? He invests in simple companies, mm. B2B companies. Like he invested in this thing called Fat Bear. What is Fat Bear? Fat Bear is Home Depot. Turns out that investing in Home Depot 30 years ago would have worked out for you mm. as people started to buy homes and fix up their homes. And he quoted some stats on, you know, Chinese couples buying their first home and moving out from the family and, and how much money they're going to spend on, on renovating their homes. And I was like, yep, we're going to make 30 times our money on this. I mean, it's just, and he's not doing anything rocket science. He's just looking at where the United States was in 1970, forecasting the next 30 years and saying, oh, look, we took 700 million people out of abject poverty. And guess what? When you come out of abject poverty, you think I should have an air conditioner and I should have a scooter and I should have a mobile phone. Then I should get an apartment and then I should get a house and then I should get a car. And so the other one he was doing was auto repair shops, you know, like Pep Boys. Again, if you would have bought Pep Boys 20 years ago, you would have made a lot of money. Yeah. That's fascinating. You know, I'm just drawing connections right now to what's going on in crypto and these, uh, you know, layer ones and everything like that. And basically a pretty good investment thesis that you could have is, all right, take a look at the Ethereum ecosystem. They've paved the way, right? Okay, you got ETH. Uh, you're going to have DeFi on that, right? So you need a decentralized exchange. You need to borrow Lend protocol. You need basic financial functions like that. Yada, yada. Okay. Well, now, okay, I've got the ETH ecosystem over here, but now I've got Solana that's getting built. And then I've got Avalanche that's getting built. Well, guess what? Someone just did a roadmap. They, they put together everything that you need just two years before, right? So you got like Orca on Solana. You got like Pangolin. You got Trader Joe on Avalanche. So it's just really interesting. And literally all you had to do was like, look at Uniswap on ETH. What's going to be the Avalanche or Solana version of that? I'm going to take a bet on it. And it's been pretty good. I, that is and, pretty interesting. And, yeah. and, and shockingly... It's going to happen again and again. And, mm -hmm. and we're so early. This is the part that, that I just get so excited. I'm mm -hmm. wearing my black T-shirts now and trying to be one of the cool crypto kids. <laughs> Not a kid. Um, in fact, it was so funny. I was, I was at the, the reception last night, and this guy comes up to me and says, you know, I'm, I'm, so, I, I'm, I'm so happy. I am so happy to meet you. I, I just want to say thank you. I'm like, for, for what? He says, you know, you, you helped change my life. I'm like, I, I didn't do anything. He says, no, you, he says, because because." Someone like like you, I'm like, go ahead, say it. Old said something good about crypto. I bought it, mm. and I thought, I think that's awesome. But I'll tell you, I, I tell every single person who who says a nice thing, I did nothing, right? Mm. Yes, I've been a proponent, I've been loud, and I've been obnoxious about it, and a few people actually went out, but you did it, and so there are a lot of people who hear things and don't do it. Right? A lot of people just heard us talk about Fat Bear in China. Most people aren't going to buy it. Now, it's hard to buy because it's a private company, but at some point, it's going to be a public company. And someday, you're going to want to own it, like Home Depot when it went public, whatever, 30 years ago, or Amazon when it went public 24 years ago. 
And, but the problem is you're not going to buy it. Most people aren't going to buy it because it's volatile. I don't like the mm-hmm. volatility or I don't believe that everyone in the world. Oh, the other one, the other one they're doing is this, the basic Chinese version of Fastenal. Mm. Right? What does Fastenal do? They make little fasteners and they yeah. move them into little warehouses that are close to companies who might need them really soon. Like, that's it. So they make screws and they put them in warehouses next to companies that might need screws. And they become a multi-gazillion dollar company. But how many people bought Fastenal? Nobody. Not nobody. But I actually have a funny story about Fastenal. So my in my previous life, I was a consultant and our whole thing was like, we really got steel. So to your point about a lot of companies that make gazillion dollars, fun exercise for anyone who... Take a look at companies that are in the S&P 500 outside of the 10 that are like Facebook and Apple and Google and all the ones you know. See how many names you know. It will be shockingly low. Um, But I know Fastenal because we went to a – I went to a steel conference in like 2016 or 2017. And we waited outside in the lobby and we actually met with this guy from Fastenal because we were trying to pitch pitch their business. You just really took me back like like five years to a very previous life. Um, I'm going to start calling you Carnegie. (laughs) <laughs> oh no please please no i, I don't think i deserve it. <laughs> um but the steel yeah this, i mean it's, it's very interesting there's no one way to skin a cat there's like a whole bunch of different things all right i want to end this because i i want to share with you the new bitcoin thesis um yeah. and i know we get a wrap here pretty soon but uh and, and i got to give credit to a guy avi fellman over at block terror who has helped change my mind about this um I think there's a pretty decent chance that you know one of the new things about this cycle right history often repeats or it often rhymes, but it doesn't repeat. So maybe we look at back at past cycles and we look at the current cycle and say, okay, what could be different? And you now have different, you have sector diversification, which you never really had before. Uh, you also, if you look at, we've talked about this too, this idea of lengthening cycles overall. So the ROI, kind of peak to trough ROI of different cycles is getting lower, but it's also getting pushed out further and yeah. further. I think you could actually make a decent case that we have diversification. And like you could look at Bitcoin as being actually in, something that looks something like a bear market uh, since that 50 to 60% drop. Remember, everyone was like, we're in a bear market. Then we were like, no, we're not in a bear market. It's like, we've basically been sideways since then. If you look at blue chip DeFi, uh, Aave, uh, Uniswap, Sushi, whatever, that has been in a bear market for the last year. That's been in a bear. And maybe what we see, I think all of us are kind of expecting this huge, uh, you know, like 80% sustained drop and it's a trough. It's like what happened in, in 2018. There's another decent possibility, which is just that we get sideways chop for another year, year and a half, and it's just boredom that kills everyone. Yeah. Uh, that could also very well be the case. Curious to get your thoughts there. No, look, uh, 100%. We, we, we actually talked about this uh, the Friday after the launch of, of BITO, mm-hmm. saying that you know, it could be a buy the rumor, sell the news kind of thing. And... And since then, you know, we've, we've done exactly And we did make a new all-time high and everybody got excited. But it happened for like three days. And yeah, three days. And we went right back, you know, from 68, you know, down to, to 50 where we are today. And I couldn't agree more that bear markets don't have to be collapses of 84%. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, those 84%, they didn't happen all at once. Right? Went yeah. from 20 to 10, back to 12, 13, down to 8, back to 10, to 6. Then we were at 6 for a long time in the summer of 18. It was just, like I say, just sick. But it was, yeah. it was an ugly 6 because it was this descending triangle. And we had this, this floor of 6,000. It just kept making lower highs and lower highs and lower highs. And then, bam. You just liquidated the last people who were on leverage, and we were at three. And I was like, "Whoa, what happened?" Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's kind of what we saw last Saturday. Is is there are a whole bunch of people still with too much leverage in Bitcoin, and they got liquidated. Mm-hmm. And when you get liquidated, the price isn't going to fall. Now this time it didn't fall fifty percent; it fell twenty percent. And but here's the problem: is I if I look at the the Bitcoin chart on your point on boredom, it's been doing this. It's been making lower highs and not flat lows. I mean, not flat lows, but lower lows. That is a bearish chart. And you know, look, I, I argue with my partners every Monday at our partner meeting about this because they're still, you know, all in on the bull side. And 
one of my favorite sayings in investing is hope is not an investment strategy. It's actually a four-letter word. And when you get to the point where you are hoping that something happens, or hoping that 2013, so it was, it was all about, this is 2017 all over again, and we got the stock-to-flow model, and I love Plan B. I think he's brilliant. Um, but I think what happened, and we've talked about this, I think what happened is in 2013 and 2017, there were no models. Right? In fact, 2013, there was nothing. It was a little teeny thing. It was kind of still a science experiment. Nobody really cared. And a few people, you know, pushed it to, to big parabolic blow off top. 2017, okay, now it's a little bit bigger. Uh, and there were some people talking about the parabolic model that was done in 2014. You had parabolic Trav and others. Um, and But you had this guy, Tim Peterson at N Squared Crypto. And you know, he said, yeah, I think your decay rate's off and my parabolic Metcalf's law model has a lower terminal value than, than yours. And so when everyone else was saying 100,000 this year, saying following that model, he was like, yeah, I'm more like 38,000, you know, is mm -hmm. fair value. It could go above fair value. Because that's what happens in these bull market cycles is, is we go above fair value. Right? There's the fair value of the network. Yeah. The network grows based on the community and based on usership. And, and I like your point on diversification, too, in that there weren't a whole lot of other options in 17. I mean, ETH was kind of there, but there wasn't a whole lot of other. There was a lot of garbage. But there just Tons. wasn't anything else. to Today, you could actually have a pretty robust portfolio with a bunch of layer ones and maybe even some, some other uh, things that are, are reasonably sized. You don't have to have all your money in, in Bitcoin. And, and the other problem with Bitcoin right now, not problem, challenge, challenge for Bitcoin, just the law of large numbers. It is really hard to move a trillion dollar asset relative to moving a hundred billion dollar asset. And the, the amount of new money that needs to come in to the Bitcoin ecosystem to keep the Metcalf's law model going, it's a big number. And I think it's coming. And I think we're going to eventually, you know, hit my 250,000 target, hit my $500,000 target, but it's not gonna be weeks and months. I think we're gonna be talking years. And this idea of a, of a bearish, kind of just range bound period for the next call it you know, 12 to 18 months before the having you know cycle starts again possible yeah i'm with you on it there's a there's a really great thread by a guy named jordy alexander as well uh we can link it in the show notes which he basically describes this problem that's going on with bitcoin he called he frames it as a prisoner's dilemma or tragedy of the commons and it's based on a couple of two two premises that you got to understand in order for crypto as an asset class to move up, you need strong Bitcoin. And then the other thing is alts will always outperform Bitcoin in a bull market. So what you end up having is this thing where Bitcoin starts to go up, people realize that, and then they start moving into alts because alts will perform better. The problem is you need strong Bitcoin for the alts to keep performing. So what ends up happening is everyone eventually as the bull, long, bull market's gone on long enough, they start to pile into alts. And when you start to pile into alts, and the funds get pulled away from Bitcoin, yeah. and then everyone ends up losing because the alts need a strong Bitcoin. Everyone's in the alts, and it all goes to shit. Uh, so it's kind of like this, um, you know, tragedy of the commons, prisoner's dilemma. Type no, thing. Again, I think it's great analysis as well. And look, at the end of the day, what we're talking about is is short term cycles, right? mm -hmm. lunar cycles. Right, the moon shows up once a day, <laughs> twenty four hours shows up again in the sky, and that's cool, but it takes longer for you know the earth to revolve around the sun right mm. it takes 365 of those cycles and so the long-term secular view of this asset right there are 350 people out here in vegas all really excited about what's going on you got unbelievable talent migrating to the space you got people like us talking about it every week yeah. uh, so, there's, so there's something there right and and we are going to change every element of our world and our society. And we're gonna do so much good. And DAOs have the ability to, to create incredible good. I mean, Bill Kite was talking about this. He's, he's trying to 
create a DAO for good karma. And I love it. I mean, I absolutely loved it because mm -hmm. I believe in karma and I believe in, in people who do good can pay it forward and, and use the bananas in the system to, to, for their on-chain monkeys and all kinds of fun stuff. So, and look, everything in the world is going to be an NFT. Everything, right? Every piece of property, every digital asset, every song, every video, every, everything's going to be an NFT. Maybe we won't call it NFTs anymore. Maybe we'll actually call it digital property rights or something else. And yes, there will be lots of other things and there will be Solana for gaming because it's not 100% accurate. And I really don't want to use something that's not 100% accurate for accounting, actually. I mean, I mean it's, it's, although it's, it's like... Uh, one of my favorite jokes, right? The guy's interviewing accountants and the first guy comes and says, okay, what's two plus two? He says, four. Thank you very much. Okay. And the second guy come in, what's two plus two? He says, four. Thank you very much. Third, you know, gal comes in, what's two plus two? What number do you want it to be? You're hired. So, <laughs> you know, I, I That's think. Awesome. That's that, awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, you know, one of, one of the things is uh, we're at that point where we we can envision a future that is dominated by these, these technological innovations. Um, and they're not going to not happen. But the fact that we now price them tick by tick, minute by minute, and everybody's so focused on them, you know, that's why I always say price is a liar. You know, it's, it's not relative to value. Value is what happens by communities you know, coming around a, a particular asset. And uh, anyway. Yeah. I agree with you. Um, exciting times, uh, but, but exciting times. I agree. I know, but most exciting times are right. Uh, you get right. paid for volatility. Yeah. Um, all right, Mark, this has been a ton of fun. I know we got to cut it here. Um, I will see you same awesome. time next week, my friend. See you next week. Cheers Thanks, and man. take care. All right.